Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. The following episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Bento Box and Clover. From websites and marketing tools to point of sale, payments, and ordering, Bento Box and Clover together offer all the unified technology you need for restaurant success. Learn more and book a demo today at getbento.com slash better. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I was going to school and working at the same time, working my butt off, and then getting up and going to school at 7 in the morning. My feet had never hurt so bad in my entire life. There was the most painful feeling I'd, I'd ever felt. I was like, wow, this is what working is. I thought I knew what it was to work, to have a job, to actually work hard. I had no clue. That is the voice of Bryce Schumann, chef of Sweetbriar Restaurant in New York City. Bryce's our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I hope all of you are well out there. Once again, I have broken my vow to drop shows on Thursdays, I have a pretty good reason. I was getting my car repaired uh, this week, or rather I took it in for what I thought was going to be a routine inspection while I was upstate New York for some things. And I went to my old garage uh, because I trust them there. And apparently my two front tires were on the brink of falling off the car. (laughs) Um They didn't stock those tires. I actually don't have my car. I'm back in our new home in Brooklyn. Uh, I spent the better part of a day waiting uh, for the tires to be delivered the way, I don't know how this works, but you know, garages seem to be able to get things dropped off by these kind of roving uh, supply people (laughs) that I envision as just kind of endlessly driving around whatever region they cover. and it ended up taking the better part of a day. I lost a day. I've been stacked on my schedule since then. So it is now Saturday morning, uh, October 29th, and I'm just recording an intro and slapping together the various pieces of the show that were already edited together uh, and sharing it with you. So this will be a fairly short introduction, but that's why, again, I am striving for Thursday. I am striving for Thursday. Hopefully this coming week I will make it and you all won't give up on me on that front. In any event, as I say, our guest 
this week is Bryce Schumann. I'll introduce him properly in a moment. Before we get to that, though, I just want to remind all of you that running a restaurant means keeping up with the times. And now more than ever, the times keep changing. Luckily, technology has the power to make keeping up a whole lot easier. Bento Box and Clover are now working together to provide restaurants with the technology they need for even more success. From Bento Box's world-class website design and marketing tools to Clover's state-of-the-art solutions for managing point-of-sale transactions and payments, every detail that goes into a great hospitality experience is supported and streamlined. So whether you own or operate a restaurant or group of restaurants, you are free to focus more time on human interactions, which of course is what restaurants are all about. Learn more and book a demo today at getbento.com slash better. And speaking of Bento Box and Clover, as you regular listeners know, we've been bringing you a limited series of special report interviews on the subjects of restaurants and tech brought to you by Bento Box and Clover. And today we wanted to have a conversation about how to manage and ticket your special events online. As many of you have probably experienced, you know, very often these days, a restaurant is doing a special event. Maybe they're hosting a guest chef or a guest team from another restaurant or an author who's just done a book. You go to their website or there's a little pop-up uh, offering and you book your ticket, give your credit card information. All of that stuff uh, no longer requires what it did not all that long ago, which was making a phone call. And uh, of course, that introduces the possibility of human error. Uh, some of the conversation we're about to have echoes a little bit of the chat I had last week with Daniel Holtzman. Um, this one is with Kendra Kuzak, who is the chief of staff. I love that title. She explains it in the beginning of the conversation. But Kendra is the chief of staff of Dan Kluger's Loring Place Restaurant in Greenwich Village in New York City, a restaurant that I absolutely love. Uh, I'm also a huge fan of Dan's, and I'm actually a huge fan of Kendra's. And the way I got to know Kendra, which is why I thought of her for this segment, is that when my last book, Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, came out several years ago, they approached me at the restaurant about doing uh, a special dinner there as part of a series they were doing to support the launch of that book. Um, it was a great, great experience. The whole team at Loring Place is great. As it happens, this is kind of a happy coincidence of this accident of recording on Saturday morning. I'm actually going to Loring Place tonight before I go to see some comedy downtown with some relatives who are visiting. And I'm looking forward to making my return to the restaurant. I haven't been there in a little bit. Um, but, you know, Kendra is someone who in her role there manages a lot of the details surrounding special events, and uh, has brought the restaurant into the modern age. Uh, she also explains this in the conversation. They didn't always use technology for this kind of thing there. And uh, I hope you will find this to be a useful dialogue that we had. So without any further ado, let me introduce to you here my chat with Kendra Cusack, Chief of Staff of Loring Place and its sister restaurants and businesses. Here's our conversation. 
Kendra, thanks for joining the show today. Before we jump into the subject at hand, you know, we were emailing about this segment and I noticed your title there is currently chief of staff. I don't think I've ever seen that with a restaurant or restaurant group before. I kind of love that title. Can you just explain the kind of breadth of what you do there? As we've started to grow the company, my role has kind of shifted towards a chief of staff role working directly for Chef Dan Kluger. So I'm helping Chef Dan and I'm helping our executive team and our management teams really make decisions about operations at the restaurants. And that covers everything from how we're running the events department to marketing, visibility of the brand, and actual operations at the restaurants themselves. You and I first met actually around an event. It's kind of why I I thought about talking to you for this segment. Gosh, I guess maybe four years ago when my book came out, I had just had Dan uh, on the show and uh, he came to me with this idea of, you know, why don't we do an event? It was part of a series that you all were doing there. I think it was maybe called like the Memory Series or something like that. And my book had a historical bent to it. And, you know, even then I was, uh, it was maybe my first time of an event that I was involved with where, you know, when I would go to the site, there would be like a little pop-up, the restaurant site I'm talking about, you know, a little pop-up about the event coming up and you could just book your you know, book your ticket or tickets that way. I guess the first question I have for you is, I mean, you're, you're younger than I am, but I'm just wondering in, in the, in the restaurant work that you've done, have you ever not done events using the technological options that are available today to manage them? Like if you ever worked a job where these kind of things were kind of done And what I now think of is the old way, you know, with people calling in over the phone and, and, you know, just booking it with someone who would put it in a notebook or something. Yeah. I mean, prior to online tipping, any event that we would do that we were hosting where we required a guest to book and pay in advance, it would all have to be done manually over phone calls and over emails. And quite honestly, we wouldn't do it often because... The logistics of that was certainly much more complicated. And I assume the potential for human error was obviously significant. Yeah. And it also really kind of adjusted the experience for the guests attending the events as well, because everything was done manually, including most likely payment happening at the end of the dinner. And so just logistically, timing-wise, for the duration of the event, it impacted other elements as well. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, it's funny to me, right? Because on one level, I feel like hospitality is is all about human interaction. Um, well, like, for example, I had Dan Holtzman on the show last week. Uh, you know, he was talking about online ordering. And what he was saying was, you know, every interaction with a guest or a customer, whatever word you prefer, is a chance to you know, kind of do something right or to make a mistake. And that, you know, the way he talked about it was he liked to kind of funnel it all into the actual face-to-face exchange. And when it came to like, you know, there's not reservations at his place, but like, you know, when it came to these kinds of things, reservations in the case of what you and I are talking about events, eh, not really probably that essential, probably the, the more important thing in those situations is just getting it right and making it, you know, as easy as possible for the customer. It sounds like you agree with that mindset. I do. And, you know, having technology for ticketed events and really any technology that we're using in a restaurant, it's allowing us to spend more time and more focus towards the experience when the guest is actually at the restaurant. And that's what's really most important is really making sure we're going above and beyond and we're creating the most special experience that we can 
all the guests actually here. And the technology behind online ordering, ticketed events, allows us to, to know that those things are already taken care of so that we can really shift our focus where it's important. And can you just talk to me about the nuts and bolts of this for a second? I mean, I the only restaurant job I've actually ever had was as a busboy when I was like 15. <laughs> I don't want to talk about how long ago that was in terms of the technology that was available. How does it work? You guys decide to do an event. I mean, I you know, I have I run a I run a podcast. I, I used to run a blog. Um, I imagine that at this point you just there's just an option in your, in the software where you go in and set up an event. I mean, is it is it pretty turnkey in that respect? Yeah, for us, we just have to decide how many tickets, the date, the time, the basic logistics, the price of the ticket. And we can input that information. We can also include information about the menu, information about the event itself. And so all of that lives in one place. Our guests are then able to see everything, all the details about the event itself, and also book the tickets directly there. It's a pretty seamless transaction. And it's also seamless for us to set up as well. And I mean, it's just in terms of like, uh, as time has gone on, do you think this is going to be just the way everyone does events at some point? I mean, it seems to me like the the biggest barrier to entry, oftentimes it's generational maybe, or just kind of technophobes, you know, who, who have to make the leap into kind of learning how to do this stuff. But like, I mean, I taught myself how to mix up, how to mix a podcast, right? And you know, now I don't have to pay an engineer anymore. Um, and it's one of the best decisions I ever made from, I mean, I love my old engineer. Um, but do you think a lot of it is just people taking the leap into using these uh, options? Yeah. And I, I think most people are already following the same steps to book concert tickets or theater tickets, plane tickets. I mean, every everything can really be purchased online. And this is falls directly into that category as well for a restaurant event experience. I appreciate you coming on. Is there any other news at Loring Place or anything as we're heading into the holiday season you'd like listeners to know? We are actually in preparation to open a new project in Hudson Yard. Oh, that's great. Yeah, this winter, actually. So that's what we're working on now. And we're very excited about that. Okay. Well, Kendra, listen, I really appreciate you coming on the pod. I loved that event we did together a couple of years ago. Yes. And thanks for your time. Thank you, Andrew. And my thanks again to Kendra Kuzak for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And I would encourage you to please visit Loring Place here in New York City. They also make great pizzas. They sell those under the banner of Washington Square, something that they started doing during the pandemic and uh, something I highly recommend to you. So our Feature guest this week is Chef Bryce Schumann. A lot of you probably know Bryce's name. For a couple of years, he had a restaurant called Bettany in Midtown Manhattan. That was a wonderful restaurant, also a beautiful restaurant. We talk all about that in the conversation. He currently has a restaurant um, that opened in the last year, which is called Sweetbriar. Uh, it is in, I guess, I don't know if we'd call it the Murray Hill neighborhood or the upper part of the Flatiron District, um, but it's in New York City. Uh, kind of between Midtown and what we would call Lower Manhattan. And um, it's a terrific restaurant. It is a live fire restaurant for someone who trained in some very high-end kitchens, most prominently 11, excuse me, 11 Madison Park. That is quite the transition that Bryce made. He explains his relatively new interest in live fire cooking and what he is trying to accomplish with it. I should say that earlier this year, I visited 
uh, Sweetbriar. I, I should be fully transparent and say that when I visited, uh, I was a guest of the restaurant. They were kind enough to invite me in to, to experience it and check it out. Um, the food there is extraordinary. He also does, I mentioned this in the conversation, a mangalista pizza. I've never had mangalista on a pizza. Oh my God. It is one of my favorite dishes in New York right now. Um, I would make a trip there just to eat that. But of course, he also does, um, you know, these ribs that he started doing uh, during the pandemic, which in some ways uh, was the genesis of what eventually became Sweetbriar. But it's much more complicated uh, and long gestating than that. And I think uh, you're going to enjoy hearing about Bryce's journey from a a young man who thought he might want to be an actor to someone who's been a very uh, successful chef here in New York City. As always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Chef Bryce Schumann. Here you go. This is kind of funny to me because you and I have seen each other around for years. Events, uh, I ate at Bettany. We saw each other at dinner a few weeks ago at, a, at Una Pizza. I don't think we've ever had an extended conversation beyond like hello at the table or hello at a tasting station at, a, at an event. So this is truly our first dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited for it. Oh, well, thank you for that. Well, before we talk about you, can we talk about Sweetbriar? Can, can you just tell people who may not know or people who aren't in New York, just as you describe it, what, what is this restaurant and what was the genesis of this restaurant? Sweetbriar is an awesome restaurant. It is something that came out of a desire to cook with open fire um, and also a desire to cook in a style that was like fun and casual, but with great attention to detail to the ingredients and the techniques without being overly fussy and I don't know I was I was doing these uh, this ribs pop up uh, during the pandemic during the pandemic yeah. and I was just having a lot of fun doing this and I you know I wanted to sort of carry that spirit into the into the restaurant and carry the spirit of fun and I was, you know, I was cooking with a, a, a few friends and, you know, every day we were getting together and just making ribs and, you know, making some cornbread and uh, a couple sides. And then we were delivering it to, you know, to people for, for fun. And it just was a great time. And I wanted to continue that spirit. And at, at the same time, you know, created a restaurant that is, you know, wholly excellent also can i interrupt for one second i first of all i have to ask you a, a question i meant for this to be the first thing i asked you when i mention you to people or if your name comes up in conversation people who maybe know you or know you know industry people about every 
seventh or eighth time someone goes, I think it's actually Bruce, but it's spelled Bryce. You're laughing. Because <laughs> Bruce is my evil alter ego. <laughs> what does that even mean? You know, Bruce Like is, Bruce Banner? Is like, that like a know, Hulk thing? You know, like Bruce is... Um, <laughs> You know, you don't want to meet Bruce, you know. He's kind of a weird guy, you know. I, I don't know, you know. <laughs> Bruce is, you know, don't ask, don't ask my wife about Bruce, you know. Is, I, I'm, I'm, I'm t- <laughs> Bruce is a real guy. You just, you know. Okay, but you go by Bryce. You I, grew I, up I, I am, being, I'm Bryce. your parents intended you f- to Bryce. be called Bryce. Yeah, okay. and I, I've always been Bryce. So these people who have said this to me are wrong, and I am correct. Yes. I'm v- vindicated. Yes, okay. absolutely. I've, so, n- I've never been Bruce, uh, except in mythological top points in being. Okay, so here's my question. Um, how much, how do because we're going to talk about all this, but you are somebody who um, really put yourself in your formative years as a cook and a chef in the fine dining crucible. Like you put yourself in the most, some of the most high stress, and I don't say any of this in a derogatory way. Some of the most high stress, exacting, perfectionist, I don't know if the people you worked for would have said that, but settings. You know, you, 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 you were an executive sous chef at 11 Madison Park in its heyday. You had your own restaurant, Bettany, which was a three-star New York Times restaurant here in New York. Um, you are someone who worked in situations where you were pushed, you know, like, like the way an, an elite athlete is pushed, right? You, you, as much as you can be probably in this business. You just described your current project. You used the word fun <laughs> and you used the word relax. Um, so I'm just curious before we, I'm this is kind of maybe something that should have come at the end of the interview, but was this something, and you mentioned doing the pop the ribs during the, during the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, but you're also a North Carolina boy. That's where you're from. Yeah. Um, and how much of this, is this a restaurant you think you would have opened as your next restaurant had we not gone through COVID? Had we all not gone through this period of self-examination? Had you not had the experience of serving something as to the eye, casual, even though you want to do it to a T, as you know, as as smoked ribs, right? Like, yeah. like, would you think you would have ended up in this place if we hadn't been through the hell of the last two years? I, I mean, honestly, no. I think one hundred percent. I was looking to open another fine dining restaurant. Before the ribs, I was, I wanted to open a fine dining restaurant, and I was determined to, and. I think that, you know, doing the ribs and doing something that, you know, it, it, it kind of found me, you know, in a way, at, at, you know, sort of out of necessity, out of necessity of, you know, A, getting out of my mother-in-law's home, who I, I, I love, I, by, by the way, I love my mother-in-law, she's awesome, but like, you know, we needed to get out of there, we needed, some, we needed something to do, we couldn't just just stay there, you know, in the, during the pandemic, we need to come back to Brooklyn and get to work and, you know, make something, do something productive of our lives. Where was your mother-in-law? Where's your mother-in-law? In Maryland. Okay. Maryland. So that's where you guys went to sit out the, the storm. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I would have opened a fine dining restaurant, you know, and I was certainly looking for those places. I, you know, I wanted to find a, a fine dining restaurant, but I wanted to be able to cook with fire. I was having a hard time finding locations, 
you know, this was like the most difficult thing. Pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic right. was finding a location that had the ability to cook with live fire because you either needed an ex- existing place that had, you know, two stacks or you needed to have the money behind the project to create it from scratch. For people who don't know, two stacks, can you just explain what that So you need two flues, two essentially... It's a ventilation two venti- yeah, yeah, two ventilation stacks, um, one for your live fire and one for your gas cooking to to do live fire cooking. Mm-hmm. And they have to be separate, and you know, one has to be cleaned every month and the other can be cleaned every three months and the you know the the one with live fire you have to have a precipitator on it and you know has to you know cleans the air essentially uh in a different way than your regular uh, you know ventilation hvac mm-hmm. and if you spend all that money up front to build it yourself then you have to somehow show how you're going to earn all that money back within a certain amount of time and so finding the people who are going to invest that money and then be willing to wait to get their money back so you know for a number of years you know most people want to see their money back in three to five years or whatever so you have to show them how they're going to get their money back mm-hmm. um and you know so there's, it, this was a it, very it, limited it's, 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 number of places that would have even been candidates for what you were looking to do exactly exactly so you know so, Exactly. Or we were starting to look at, you know, one-story buildings in Brooklyn where you can maybe just pop a, pop a hole in the ceiling in the roof, you know. And, um, you know, th- those were cool. starting to look to be interesting, uh, maybe, opportunities. What was the attraction for you of live fire? Because, again, I think I, about your background and, like, live fire to me... There's more of a rusticity to it to me. This may I may be this may be an unsophisticated comment I'm making, but to me there's more of a rusticity. I don't think of that as in line in the same lane as what you were doing before. I think you know it was about to me it was about flavor, a hundred percent about flavor, and I just think that it, it was the key to getting better flavor out of the food and I really wanted to take what I was doing at Bettany and take a a turn with what I was doing and I thought that you know the best way to to take the right turn was to add an element you know add another element to the mix that would inherently change the cooking and the style of cooking so you know I would you know sometimes put limiters on what I would do while I was there. For instance, we would um, say, okay, we're not going to cook with butter. And we would just stop using butter in the restaurant. And we did that for maybe three months. And we just stopped using butter just to see where our cooking goes. And so we didn't use any butter in the pastries. We didn't use any butter in the bread or any butter in anything any no butter glazes no butter you know because i just saw we had we had butter everywhere we were glazing everything in butter we were finishing sauces with butter we were you know had butter in the bread we were butter in the 
in the desserts, there's butter, uh, brown, finish the meat with brown butter. We're just like, it, <laughs> this is know. starting to sound like so, the, so I, the, sh- the list of shrimp uh, things in Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's just, you know, why don't we take butter away and then see what we learn from it a little bit. And so we started doing, we started using all kinds of animal fats and um, coconut fat and avocado oil and uh, was this know. for the creative challenge of it, or was this yeah, a health-driven thing? It was 100 percent about the creative challenge. It had nothing to do with health. I, I could care less about the health challenge. There's nothing healthy about beef fat, or pork fat, or um, right. so you were just yeah. doing this to push yourselves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, and so adding live fire was an idea to just you know wanted to add an element that would take the food in a different direction. It would, it would essentially add uh, another element that would change the cuisine and make it something new. But in a, this was, again, this was part of the fine dining package you initially envisioned. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, and really then focusing on using the live fire to create food that was distinctive. Because um, I was constantly searching, and, and I still am in a way, trying to make food that you have to go to that restaurant to get it. Like food that you can't go, you can't go anywhere else and get it anywhere else at some other restaurant. You have to go to that restaurant to have it. You know. I love what you just said. Where does that come from? That that thought you just expressed. And I have a very specific reason for asking, but I, I rarely hear somebody as, as relatively young as you say what you just said. I don't know, a desire to, you know, you wanna be unique in a way and kind of speaking, having point of view, you know, having having your own voice, having point of view, having a perspective. And I think, I think it's important because then it gives it gives everybody something, to, you know. It gives everybody a sort of a basis to something to believe in, something to like. Oh, you mean amongst your team? A, so amongst the team, something. Yeah. Everybody it gives something. Everybody a platform to stand on, and and to work from, and then people come to you with something to expect, and also they come to you, um, you know, craving that thing over and over and over again. The reason I, I asked the question is, uh, I wrote a book several years ago about the American chefs of the 70s and 80s, and one of the interviews I did, the person said to me, they, they were talking about kind of what they saw as the homogenization of New York restaurant food, and really, to some extent, big city American restaurant food. You know, um, I mean, now we have concepts that move around from city to city to city to city and I mean I'm happy for a lot of these people are friends of mine I'm happy if they're making money but I don't you know I don't the last thing I want to do when I go to LA is eat at an outpost of a place from here you know what I mean but they were talking about like the hate like the golden age of of New York dining which they saw as like the 80s and the 90s and they were saying you know it was like I'm gonna go here and eat this like I'm gonna go here and eat John George food I'm gonna go here and eat Alfred Portali food. I'm gonna go here and eat Diane Forley's, you know, like that's how they thought of it. And they felt like that had been lost a little bit that you're just kind of like seeing so much of the same stuff on menus and, and you know, these, these um, right, there's easy jokes that come to mind, right? Like the kale salad and the avocado toast and the, right? There are things that you, like, 
And I understand there are reasons for that. Right. I think it's a little bit of like hedging your bet as a business owner mm-hmm. if you're not too much out on a limb. Yeah. But to, I love what you said, that you want to do stuff that's unique to your restaurant, right? Because I, as a diner, that's what excites me. Yeah, you know, and I've told you this. The you do this mango. I don't know if it's in rotation right now. The yeah, mangalista ham. Yeah, it's on pizza. I don't know if I'll ever be able to take it off. Is I'm not the only one. <laughs> it's. I think it's our most popular pizza. That's one of the best things I ate this year. Oh, thank you. Know? you. And I think that'll be true with, at the end of the year. You know, like that is a dish I've told people to come if they don't have time for dinner. Come here, get go to the bar, and get that, and maybe an app, and you know, like. It's it's what I call a destination dish. Like cool. I, that thing just knocked me out. Thank you. And you know I'm torn between. Sometimes I'm torn between that and then putting on the kale salad and the the avocado toast because you know sometimes I wonder. I I look over and I see you know some of these restaurants that are in the same neighborhood and like you know like literally across the street. And, you know, you'll see them at lunchtime and they'll just be like packed with a thousand people, you know, and you go and you see their their menu. And what is it? It's the avocado toast, the kale salad, the, you know, the whatever chicken club sandwich, the, um, you know, and, and on down the line. It makes you wonder sometimes when like, I mean, we're not open for lunch, but. Um, if it makes you wonder, like, is that the formula to having a busy, successful business? Do, you know, and you do I do I just need to put on the kale salad and the avocado toast and and like and and is is, is that it? Is that all? Is you know and well, can can I take you back to something <laughs> I heard you say in another interview? Yeah, you had a teacher in culinary school who drew, I don't know if it was a grid or a whatever. Yes. And it was about the safe road. Yes. And the, I can't remember the exact. Yes. It right? Was, but it was. It was, safe, it was like safe and unsafe. Yeah. Right. But can you, doesn't this yeah. answer your own question? Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, you know, it's safe. And it was like, you know, you could be a, you know, a culinary school teacher or, you know, whatever. And fine and you could have you know plenty of students or whatever or you could you know I don't know what else it was he was telling you I think it was even certain type of restaurants exactly you could just do like kind of a you know right down the line classic Americana kind of thing and you'll you know you'll be able to buy a house and have a life and but you won't be I I can't remember it exactly. Outstanding, right? Right, but to me, it's about what you want for you. Yeah. And how that dovetails with what you can sell to the public, right? And and that's the that's that where those things overlap is where your your Bryce Schumann's happy place is, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I don't think like you maybe would have a like a healthy bank account if you had a restaurant like the one you're describing, but you would be you personally. And this can start to sound a little precious to people who don't do things that are expressive for a living, but you'd probably be spiritually unfulfilled. Right. Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely. And and you know, and spiritually, being spiritually unfulfilled is a terrible place to be because it results in unhappiness in other places in your life. 
and I've realized that over the years living with my wife and um, dealing with other you know other issues so I found that you might find a kale salad and a avocado toast on my menu and maybe at brunch <laughs> you know it, we open for brunch there might be a place for it you know or I might sneak my take on it somewhere and do somehow do a version of it but I think what you're always going to find is that I'm always going to be creating and making interesting cool dishes with vegetables and meats and things that are going to be unique and things that you can't find anywhere else yeah you know but I hasten to add but they but that makes sense yeah like you don't just you're not doing like far out stuff you're doing yeah. stuff that yes. you know it has your your take on it your spin on it right right but it's not for anyone who hears what you just said i want to just emphasize it's it's very relatable yeah but yeah. that's always been true of your food yeah 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 i mean yeah exactly i'm not um, you, you're I'm not, not someone who's experimental for experimental sake no no yeah. no 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 not not at all it's it's going to be you know it'll be like fire roasted leeks on a burnt leek vinaigrette with sorrel and walnuts right you know it's it's but you know it, it's not it's not that far out there it's it's great when you eat it it's delicious it's a leek vinaigrette right but it's and, your dish but exactly yeah i mean it's funny this whole time you know i remember you the guy who gave me my break as a writer was alfred portali back when he was at gotham bar and grill and and i did three cookbooks with him and in the heyday of that restaurant, which was creatively one of the most important restaurants of its time in New York, I think I can say, I mean, I think I've said it actually once on this show before when J.J. Johnson was on, but um, the number one selling app, when there were landmark dishes on that, like his famous tuna tartare with the baguette croutons that like stuck up in the air, you know, or like a daily changing pasta and the seafood salad that was on the menu for like, you know, 30 years, Number one selling dish, garden salad. Yeah. I mean, that says something. Yeah, I mean, right now my ribs are number one, and number two is the salad right now. Not everyone's number, a foodie. Number three is the cornbread. Okay, let's talk about you a little bit. You grew up in North Carolina. I did. Whereabouts? I, well, I'm from Chapel Hill. I lived in Hillsboro for a little bit. I uh, lived in Chapel Hill, and then I ended up moving to... Uh, Pennsylvania and lived in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. For Where's that? Carlisle is about 45 minutes out of Harrisburg oh, okay. on 81. Okay. And there's a, it is famous for its car fair. Okay. I remember one year some guy got on top of some cars and started throwing car parts around at the police and he got oh, wow. shot and killed one time. Wow. That was probably one of the few memories I have of Carlisle. And I was I left Pennsylvania and moved to Greenville, North Carolina, which uh, I met some good friends while I was there, but I will say for the most part um, it was a kind of a nightmare of an experience mm. uh, living there. Can I ask why? Uh, from the moment I arrived, I just didn't really fit in, like culturally. I feel like you know, I can, I arrived coming from Pennsylvania, and my middle school was in Winterville, North Carolina, and 
the kids immediately started calling me a Yankee and um, things like this. Middle schoolers can be very cruel, kind of. Yeah. And I just, like, didn't fit in. How did you respond to that? Were you, uh, did you push back or did you just withdraw I, and kind of go yeah, inward? Yeah, I, I was more of a kind of withdraw rather than, like, fight. You know, I ended up getting along with a few people and... You know, I found a few friends, but I ended up, let's see, I ended up graduating from high school in, from a high school in Winston-Salem for the Winston-Salem, it was uh, from the North Carolina School of the Arts for acting. I'm a terrible actor. Um, but you wanted, you wanted to be an actor, I, I no? I wanted to be an actor. Yeah. I did. It was a, it was a conservatory for acting. I really enjoyed doing that. I ended up coming to New York for to audition for schools for different college for different colleges for performing for yeah for performing arts and um, I didn't really get into the schools I wanted to um, but uh, was that like an audition process yeah so you audition for the colleges there's like a weekend where most of the colleges get together is this a monologue thing yeah you what, do you remember what monologue you did you have to go and give I gosh I did Edmund from Lear I okay think, and then I did something from Eugene O'Neill from Long Day's Journey into Night I ended up getting into DePaul which I should have gone to tell you the truth, but I was like, you know, I was like, oh, I want to go to CalArts or uh, Tisch or something like that, and I was determined to. So I was like, I'm going to take a year off, and I'm going to work on my monologues and oh, maybe get some commercial work in Wilmington, because there's a lot of commercials. There's a lot of film stuff going mm-hmm. on in Wilmington, North Carolina. I did none of that. I moved back to Greenville. Basically, just ended up going to a lot of like late night dance parties and tried to learn how to be a DJ and spent all my time doing that and got in a lot of trouble. And you? Yes. Really? Yeah. Can I interrupt you for one second? Yeah. The acting thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious what made you want to act, and I'm curious about. Uh, you said something. You said I was a terrible. What did you say? You were a horrible actor. I'm. A t- I'm, I'm not that. I. I, 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 how, I. First of all, how would? How did you even know that? I'm. You couldn't have seen yourself very much. I'm a ham. I'm a ham. You know. I'm just. Like <laughs> really, you seem like such a shy, uh, yeah. quiet guy. No, I. You I an, this is the. Is this the alter ego? Alter, you were e- alter ego. Uh, definitely alter ego. No, I. I wasn't as good as I thought I was. I, th- you know, I thought I was really, really good, but I didn't get into the schools that I wanted to. You know what I mean? And it, and it, and it hit me kind of hard. I was a little upset about that, and I. So to me, that said, I wasn't as good as I thought I was, and um, you know, I guess I, sh- I, sh- in retrospect. I probably was just fine. I just needed some more support. I, I really needed more support. Somebody to say, "Hey, you know, you're good. You should just do this. This is what you should do. Like, get your stuff together and go to this school, and you're gonna like get your stuff together, and you're gonna figure it out. Like, push, push. Let's yeah, go. Right. You know. But nobody was there to really do that yeah. for me. I mean, my folks 
certain weren't doing it. They were more kind of listening to me, I guess, which was like, oh, I just want to take a year off. Like, <laughs> right. You know, I think it's a very scary thing when kids tell parents they want to. Well, probably even be a chef is a scary thing, but you know, anything that's not like a white collar thing, I think a lot of parents like just see tragedy ahead, you know? Yeah, exactly. Am I correct about this? Your, your kind of portal into uh, the restaurant world was somewhere in this time you take a dishwashing job? Yeah, exactly. I took a job as a dishwasher at a restaurant called Mesh Cafe. Where was this? Greenville, North Carolina. What kind of place? It was it was one of Greenville's premier fine dining restaurants, um, and it was uh, they had live music on Thursdays. There was uh, I think there was like trivia on Wednesdays. There was a uh, yeah, it was uh, American French American, continental American what was it? yeah American you know kind of restaurant. Uh-huh. But there was you know there was frozen lobster tail. Got there it. was uh, a steak. There was. You know, a fried salmon dish. There was a different pastas and things on the menu, and this uh, was um, where I met my wife. Actually, I met Jen there. I, I was the dishwasher. She was a waitress, and you got a lot uh, out of that job. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I was, and uh, I was washing dishes. And then two, about almost two and a half years later, I was the chef de cuisine of the restaurant. But I, I, I loved it. I loved washing dishes. That was a great job. It was, um, it was a lot of fun. You know, you just, you just focus on washing dishes. You put things away. You clean it up. You make sure things are nice and tidy and clean, and make sure it's all nice and nobody messes with you and. That's it, and then. Well, what's interesting? This is people who listen to the show for a long time know this, but I've, I'm fascinated by that position in a kitchen, because you have the lifers, you know, the people who that's their job, and they're not looking to be cooks or sh- or anything. And then there's people like you who it's like they get that job when they're young, and for a lot of people, it's how they discover this world, yeah. you know. And I mean, this is an extreme case. You're deciding that you're describing that you went from dishwasher and chef de cuisine in the same place so yeah. that, that was basically functioned as your cooking school it was it was I wouldn't say it was that much of a cooking school but it was I mean I learned a lot I learned you know how to grill a steak I learned how to saute something I learned how to plate and how to push and how to go down in a burning ball of flames did um, you have a kind of a, like a, a guardian angel or mentor figure there um, you know, I would say, you know, Fred Sullivan, who was the owner, was um, absolutely a, you know, a, a, I would say a guardian angel. Um, you know, he, he wasn't a, a mentor as far as a chef on the line, but he was, um, you know, definitely there, very encouraging and uh, definitely a um, benevolent figure. Um, and I was really happy to have him, uh, as a, you know, as a, as a leader and uh, owner. How did you, over that period of time, get to a skill set level that you could, I understand we're not talking about EMP, right? Mm -hmm. But 
still, to be the chef de cuisine, to be the person who sets the menu, to be the person managing the team, to be the person who, you know, gives you the blessing for plates to leave the pass. Like, did you learn it all there? Were you watching cooking shows? Were you reading cookbooks oh. at home? Like, oh, yeah. like what? How? How were you supplementing? You're on the job experience. Oh, I, lear- I learned it all there, and then I was, gosh, it was anywhere I could get th- get ideas. It was from, like, copies of my mom's Southern Living magazine to um, old cookbooks that were, like, from... Um, on just on on my mom's cookbook shelf, Joy of Cooking, things like that. There was gosh, there was a Time Life series that my mom had. Oh sure, of just uh, yeah, the ton- old like from the sixties. Yeah, one? yeah, a ton sure. Of these uh, books that I was drawing uh, inspiration from, and then I was also getting menus from other restaurants around town, or I would look up menus from restaurants in New York. I would look up restaurants in New York and I'd look up their menus and I would try to decipher what the menu was and what the dishes were and what things like went together. And then I would try to just like figure out a dish with those ingredients Mm -hmm. and kind of what it was and try to put it together. You know, a lot of times it would be like a French restaurant, you know, and then I'd be trying to uh, also, um, you know, interpret the the, the French essentially, you know, Mm -hmm. and try to decode it and then figure out what what it was and then try to put the ingredients together and sometimes to no success. Gosh, I was partying a lot too. Um, then sometimes it would be just like a hot summer day outside and I'd tell them I'd ask the bar for two pitchers of margaritas and do like a margarita marinated tuna dish with and to put half the margaritas on the tuna and then we'd drink a pitcher of margaritas on the line and um, serve the tuna for dinner that night it was like that this was the type of place it Mm -hmm. was it was, uh, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. At what point in all this do you decide this is your path, that you this is what you want to pursue? Um, was it during, I'm assuming since you got to the level of chef there that this was where you made that. At a certain point in time, it was, Jen was, she was at the end of her junior year and getting ready to go into her last year. And I, I got to a point and I was deciding that I needed to decide what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to go back into acting or if I wanted to go to culinary school or I had this idea that I was maybe going to be a masseuse, decided that I would go to culinary, culinary school. So I, you know, picked up all my stuff. I researched culinary schools and I decided I wanted to go to culinary school in a city. I wanted to be in a, in a city. I also wanted to get about as far away from Greenville, North Carolina as possible. Uh, San Francisco was about as far as you could go. Had you ever been there before? No, never been before. I applied and um, went to the California Culinary Academy. And when I showed up, I had no, nowhere to live. I had my guitar case and a giant suitcase. This is like a cook arriving in Europe for like a stage, and right? And I like, just show up. Improvise. Looking like, hey, I need a place to live. Did Jen go with you? Uh, no, not, no, not the first time. They put me in some kind of weird pension situation with the bathroom down the hall and I'm in a bunk um, and it was like $850 a month or something. It was unlivable because it was just like constant partying. Just uh, You couldn't get any sleep. It was day, night, whatever. 
you just it was impossible. And I don't so, know how many people know that school. It's not around anymore. California Culinary. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. Um, you know, there's some interesting little footnotes about it in history. Like Jeremiah Tower taught there for a while. Um, most people think Charlie Trotter was entirely self-taught, but in fact, he had actually matriculated at that school for a short time before he dropped out. Yeah. What, what was the crowd like there? Was it uh, a lot of people your age? Was it career changers? Was it um, huh. people who like had their sights set on? Because you're, you're young enough that it's like, you know, there, being a chef was no longer seen as this kind of like, you know... Uh, road to nowhere like you know there was fame and fortune for available right, right. so yeah. i'm curious to know what the student body was like there was i mean there yeah there was some there was some younger there was some younger people there and um there was some career changers it was mixed you know it, it was it was um uh but i'd say it was mainly people my own age and, and you were there for how long uh, it's two year program. It's, but I was in San Francisco for th about three years mm -hmm. and I worked. So, but as soon as I got there, I got a job at Postrio and started working at Postrio. That was a Wolfgang Puck project for people who don't know. Right. I think in partnership, wasn't that with Pat Coletto? I think it uh -huh. was yep. the designer. It's, yeah. Yep. Um, and it's, it was in a Kempton hotel. Let's see. I was going to school and working at the same time, working my butt off, and then getting up and going to school at 7 in the morning. My feet had never hurt so bad in my entire life. It was the most painful, there was the most painful feeling I, I, I'd ever felt. I was like, wow, this is what working is. I, I thought I knew what it was to work, to have a job, to, like, mm -hmm. to, to, to actually work hard. I had no clue. And, uh, you know, I quickly found out what it was. How did what you had picked up back home at the restaurant where you had spent those two and a half years, how did that prepare you for, you know, what they would call in, like, baseball the show, right? How did that prepare oh, you for the major uh, leagues? Oh, like, when you, get, like to Wolfgang, when you get to a Wolfgang Puck restaurant in one of the most important food cities in America, how did you, uh, how did you, how did you, uh, Oh, I represent. Was, I was in the. I was in the complete shit. Ter it was terrible. Terms I, you didn't know. Yeah. Techniques you didn't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was like I, being thrown into the deep end of the. Oh pool. yeah, I. You know, I. I. I told. You know, I told them. Oh yeah, I was like the chef de cuisine of this restaurant. You know, and w walking in, you know, they thought I was maybe going to work the grill or you know, and when I showed you know showed them what I knew or how I worked, essentially they were like, no, this guy is on garmage. And barely gonna make it. And I remember, I remember one time looking at Jack Yoss, who was the chef de cuisine at the time, and looking up to him. And I was like, Whew, I made it another day. <laughs> and kind of joking, and he just totally, totally pan, deadpan was like, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> like, how long did that hell? Last, how long were you in that place of feeling like you know, like oh, like a drag on on your work? Oh, your it must have been like two, at least two months, at Oof. least maybe more. I, I it's it hard. It was tough. It was tough. It was hard to it, because, in Garmage was one of these stations where it was like a two man station, but they only only staffed it with one person. So you would work it until you just go down in a burning ball of flames, and then some a sous chef would come over and pull your head above water, and then let you go, and then you just go down again, mm -hmm. and then the sous chef would come over and pull your head above water until you just go down again. 
Because they do, you do like two and a half turns every single night. Did you ever think about quitting the profession? Like, did that test you enough that no, you thought about getting out? No, no, no. Did no. you 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 believed that you would eventually get better? You did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. One hundred percent. And did you get better while you were still in that job? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. One hundred percent. I I ended up working every station there at the restaurant. And um, and well, yeah. And then every station I went to from there, I picked it up very quickly. It wasn't it wasn't an issue after that. After working Garmagee and like learning what it takes, you know, then the other stations were easy. How often did Wolfgang come through? Was he there much? I met him like twice. Was it from there to Rubicon? Yeah, Rubicon okay. with Stuart Rioza, yeah. which is one of my. Was Tracy still involved in the restaurant? No, she was off. She yeah, because that was that was a that was a Drew Nieperant project. Yeah, it was. Originally, Tracy Desjardins was the chef. Yeah. Okay, and then Stuart and Drew and Drew has Drew is um, I will say um, to Tracy. I mean not Tracy, but Stuart has been one of the most influential chefs in my career. He taught me a ton. He was at the restaurant all the time. He worked his tail off. He taught me so much. The man is, um, he's a real chef's chef. Like he um, is so positive and has just great energy. He is so, uh, he's so creative. I really enjoyed working with Stuart a lot. And um, Well, for people who don't know that name, he and his wife, Nicole, Nicole. have now for years had State Bird Provisions, yep. which I, they were not there the night I ate there. I was there with a bunch of New York food people. Okay. I, I don't want to drop names, but they were out of town. Uh, but um, So anyway, we went in, and when you come in there, I don't know if it's still like this, but if you came in with, I think, I think six or more people, you don't they just basically it's a prefix and like it's the whole menu basically coursed out it's one of the best dinners i ever had in san francisco yeah it was so fun interesting yeah um uh kind of a uh i say i mean this in a good way a hodgepodge of a lot of different yeah influences yeah but it all hung together it's so good it was so good yeah it was so good, and the staff was awesome. The way you described what you're trying to do here, I would apply all those adjectives to that restaurant. Yes. You know, it was fun, it was relaxed, but it was executed. Yeah, I remember when I was actually, I, I was on the phone with, with Stuart, and he told me, he was like, Bryce, I, I think I want to do dim sum. But like, he's like, I want to do dim sum. It wasn't, I think. It was, I want to do dim sum, but like my way, you know, like, you know, like carts, but like have like my food and like pushing around and people have cards and like, yeah, was like, that was all, all right. going on around I, us. I, I, I was yeah. like, oh, I was like, all right, sure, Stu. Okay. All right. Sure. Right. And then like, and then he opened that restaurant and like, it was, um, amazing. I, I just, uh, I, I really, I, I've, I learned a lot from him. I haven't talked to him in a long time and I should probably call him because, um, I respect, I respect him and Nicole a lot. So what did you you say you learned a lot from him like what like uh, on all different levels like like uh, or like uh, everything, management every, vision every, food everything from organ, organization to recipes to um, to just food and ingredients to treat how to treat your ingredients and how to 
manage and organize your mise en place and your station to, you know, cold, you know, to, taught me about savory desserts to, you know, like it was just a whole world of cool stuff. That How I long had. were you with him? Uh, about a year and a half. Okay. Yeah. And then from there, what was next? From there, we moved to uh, Delaware and um, moved to Delaware to save money to travel in Europe. And um, we worked at this Irish party bar called Irish Eyes. And we saved money. Bar, I saved money bar backing, which is an awesome job. Being a bar back is sick. Um, and we saved cash. We went to Europe and I got a job in Brussels at a two-star place called Le Chalet de la Forêt, working for a guy called Pascal de Vilcanier. And uh, it was awesome experience. It was all in French. It was during the Christmas season. Um, you know, it was one of these places where the maitre d' would walk into the kitchen and announce the menu in French and then hand one handwritten ticket to the chef who's at the front and then that is it. And then if you didn't catch the menu, you're screwed. <laughs> and but what do you mean the menu? For the night? No, the menu for the table. An individual table. An individual Got table, it. right. The so, the maitre d' would call this. The, the, the maitre d', exactly. Okay. I don't know if it was the maitre d' or if it was the like captain the, the, or, ca right. the captain. It's a front of house yeah, person. Exactly. It wasn't handed to the chef who would then call it and we chef. It wasn't no, that. No, no. They would call it and, and then they would hand it to the chef. I just, the only way I could keep up was because the I was the entremetier to the meat cook. And the meat cook was a Flemish Belgian. And the Flemish Belgians speak like 11 languages because nobody speaks Dutch, you know? And so um, I would be like, what did he just say? <laughs> like, you know, basically like, was right. that a Cote de Vaux or Cote de Port, right? Because the two sound very similar when it's coming out of somebody's mouth mm -hmm. in French really fast. It was a eye-opening experience because I thought, again, I th it was one of those experiences where I thought I was, I, I knew what I was doing and I was a good chef. And I was... Humbled? Humbled. <laughs> because it was... But this a, was a different style of food totally than you were doing out in San Francisco. It was totally different. This isn't what Wolfgang does. This isn't what Stewart does. This is this is two-star French food. Yeah. Where, like, they brought wild hair in the back and, like would put it up and skin it just right there in the back and then pick the buckshot out of it or the, the bird shot out, out of it. Exactly. Yeah, and it wasn't right. it wasn't put on a spit. It was oh. broken down okay. into different parts and then like the the loins were cooked in a certain way for a dish and the you know the what was put on a spit was uh, the snipe. Oh they wow. Would pick snipe and then they would put it on a spit on the rotisserie and cook it with the guts inside of it and then they would squeeze the guts out of it and smear all the guts through a tammy a la minute right before serving it and put it on toast and serve the toast <laughs> with the roasted bird. God bless them. That probably sounds horrible to some people, but there's a place for it, you know? And that's 
that's the place for it, yeah. <laughs> where you were. Yeah, in the wintertime in, in Belgium. But I have to say, as, as much as you just said this, like, once again, kind of took you down a peg and gave you, like, something to try to, like, uh, something to try to summit, right? Um, this seems to me, in some ways, the most in line with where you went when you got to New York. Yeah. Like, and this was kind of, this is closer to what went on at EMP than what you were doing out west. Absolutely. Did it light some? Did it light you up a little bit? Was there something about oh, it got, that turned got, you on? Oh, I got lit up. <laughs> no, but I mean, did it turn you? Like, did it excite you? Did it get make? Did, yeah. Did it show you something that you wanted to kind of shoot for? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think that it what it did was um, it showed me that I really wasn't a big fan of the Belgian style and French style of. Uh, cooking cooks like I mean and when I say that it was like the getting to work at 8 a.m. and leaving at midnight every single day (laughs) with the 45 minute break in the middle when you would probably nap yeah exactly in the Uh, dining room did you ever do that we didn't sleep in the dining room it was a little room upstairs because it was in a house and it was Pascal lived in the house upstairs and there was a little room where the, all the cooks took a break, but or I would go, I would run, and I would go and meet, um, I would meet Jen for, on my break and have a cup of tea, and um, and uh, kiss her, and then go back to work. I enjoyed it. I learned that that there's, you know, I just wasn't as good as I thought I was, you know, that I had so much more to learn, that I'm just, you know, that there's so much more out there. Do you still feel that way? And the reason I ask it is, I feel like maybe you chronologically where you fit in, you're probably right in the middle of this kind of thing I'm about to mention. But I feel like for the longest time, it was like that, what you're describing was like kind of this, like the, you know, the Western, the European fine dining kind of food. That was like the pinnacle, right? And most people acknowledged or felt that way, right? But I feel like in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, there's so many different ways to be a chef. There's so many different, there, there, there's, there's perfectly, to my mind, legitimate, delicious food that doesn't require the level of technical prowess that you witnessed for the first time when you went over there, right? But I, can, I, 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 I don't see one as to me, like I, this is like an evolution of my own thinking, but to me, I don't see one is necessarily better than the other. I just think there are two different ways of doing it. Does that mm. make sense? You mm. may totally disagree with it. Right, right. I, Does I, that make sense, what I'm saying, though? Yeah, like, no, I think, no, no, I totally understand. Like, if I can I, go get some amazing well, traditional Korean food somewhere, that's going to be, a, that's a very different person with a very different skill set who cooked it yeah. than I would get at like a, you know, a, a three Michelin star restaurant, but it might be just as delicious. Just as enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. It's why I, I've always t- traditionally loved great Chinese food is because I can maybe spend a little less money on it, but I can have an amazing meal. Right. I mean, although good Chinese food is getting expensive um, and well-deserved, it, it's worth every doggone penny. And, you know, I, I just like... You know, great tacos don't necessarily, shouldn't necessarily be cheap either. Uh, I understand what you're saying. It's like you can get the same enjoyment, I don't know, out of of reading Great Expectations or reading a comic book. 
I don't know. Yeah, you I know, guess. You, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> anyway, I don't know. It's an abstract thought. But you felt like you, you felt like to be the chef you wanted to be, you needed to master the kind of thing that you were witnessing there for the first time. Yeah, I felt like I, I felt like I needed to continue on this fine dining path and um and so i was looking for more of that and and to get as and to get as good at it as i possibly could what was it if you can put words to it because i think at some level this is just an animal thing and it's like attraction to somebody right like you can't maybe even explain it but can you put words to what it was that drew you to that like you saw that was it like was it the challenge was it the end result and kind of how delicious and beautiful it was? Was it like, what was it? Because this is hard stuff you're talking about. Um, this is stuff people spend years getting good at. Prove my worth in life. I don't know. You know? Like, wow. <laughs> okay. To be really great at something that, you know, something that I'm passionate about and is to be, is, is is important you know something that you love and to be really great at it why do you do that uh, you know because yeah. because because it's there because you care yeah when does emp come into your life emp uh so we come back from uh europe and we go back to um, delaware to save money again and the place where we worked at by the way some guy burns it to the ground so I don't have a place to save money, and then he then it burns to the ground again. By the way, um, so strange. I've heard that story I, before. That's so strange. I, yeah, I I end up meeting one of those we know was arson, and the other one was we're not an, sure. Yeah, we're not sure. Yeah, the the I end up meeting one of my uh, best friends in the world. His name is Hari Cameron. He's a great guy, good chef, and I think he was nominated for a Beard Award this year, um, and well deserving. Um, but um, he's uh, then I end up moving to uh, New York. We saved money. We moved to New York, uh, and I staged around at different restaurants in in the city. I trailed uh, at some good restaurants, and I just thought the energy at Eleven Madison Park was where it was at. It was just there. It was just on fire, like. Everybody, the energy was so intense. Everybody had this passion about it. It was the the intense energy was, we are going for four stars. Passion, energy, like this is we have a mission, and it is this is going to be it, and we are going to push for this. At, at what point you say they were going for four stars? I don't know. If, a lot of people don't know this, but Eleven Madison Park, Daniel Holm was not the original chef. Mm -hmm. um, originally, it was owned by Danny Meyer. Mm -hmm. uh, Danny brought Daniel Holm in, and Will Gadara, who's no longer with the group, um, was in the Danny Meyer organization, ended up at the restaurant. He and, and Daniel, for a time, had this amazing chemistry. He was at Cafe 2 in the, the, at the, mo at the Modern. modern yeah. yeah, the uh, Modern Museum, Museum of Modern Art. Yeah. And then uh, they bought the restaurant from Danny, and they set about, you know, they wanted, they, wanted it, they wanted the three Michelin stars, they wanted the four New York Times stars, they wanted the fifth, number one and the 50 best. They got all those things. Um, but at what point in that campaign 
did you come in there? Like, where was the restaurant in its evolution? Right, right, right after they got three stars from the Times, okay. I think. And um, it was uh, then, it was in October of 2007. Okay. And um, so it was after they got three stars, uh, after Daniel got reviewed and got three stars, but before four stars. And then, um, so... I went in there and was part of them getting uh, four stars and went from zero to one and it jumped from one to three Michelin stars, um, skipping over two, which I haven't seen that before. Very rare. Yeah. And then... Um, Starting with two is rare and one to three is rare. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all of those James Beard Awards, I was there. All of those parties. <laughs> There were so many crazy parties. Yeah. So many, you know, ladies, high heels, their whole holes in the banquettes. So much champagne sprayed around and booze on the floor that the porters had to clean up in the morning. Still, the plate, this place, the entire restaurant still smelling like a frat house, like the next day. The, the, the example I always give people is, um, I guess they must have won a big beard award one year and they had an after party mm -hmm. at the restaurant. And the only way I could explain it to people was when you, and I'm not saying this applies to these guys, right? But was when like you see a movie where people are making a ton of money, <laughs> like in Scarface. Yeah. That montage in Scarface when he's all, and he's like buys a tiger and you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and all just the money machines like just going <laughs> That's what those parties were like. I went there, the place was packed. Like you said, yeah. people dancing on the tables, dancing on the banquettes. They had these, a DJ, these two enormous person-sized speakers. Yeah. There was nobody at the door. Like if you knew to go in there, you could go in. Yeah. And I'll never forget this. I'm at the bar. It's two in the morning. Place is still packed. And I see Jonathan Waxman in a bar, black Barbudo t-shirt. <laughs> literally as if a tide is pushing him toward me of people <laughs> and by the way the bar was just an open bar yeah you could go up and order a cock like i want a michter's manhattan just you know it wasn't yeah. like the you know and and jonathan gets pushed over to me and he turns and he looks and he goes looks at like the room and he goes how the fuck are these guys gonna open for lunch <laughs> Yeah. yeah. That, that, I'll never forget it. It was surreal. Yeah. But that was typical in that that was a that was a fun time. That happened. Yeah. That happened and and this you know like stories of cooks sleeping on bags of flour in the dry storage are true. You know, because you guys were being pushed so hard. No, because the parties. Oh, the parties. And then oh, and sure. then having to get up be there for the lunch service the next day. Yeah. After after the Derby also was the place was just a disaster. Um, I feel I feel bad for um, gosh for Nelson Nelson uh, the porter who who would clean all that up in the, the next day. What was it like to be in that kitchen though? I mean, what when you think about it right now? Like I'll never forget years ago I asked. Uh, Patrick Tarai, who had owned Mame's Own, which was the big celebrity hang in LA. It's where Wolfgang first got noticed before Spago. And I said, what's the big emotion you think of when, I, when you think of those days? You know, because they were crazy time. It was comparable to what 11 Madison was in its time, you know, at that time we're talking about. And Patrick just looks at me and he goes, tired. <laughs> 
When you look back, what's the mix of feelings of that period of time when you were in the kitchen there? Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to think it was, it's complicated, I have to think. Like, it must have been exciting, it must have been exhausting, it must have been incredibly stressful. Um, it must have felt like you were at the center of the food world at that moment. But I don't want to, I'm putting words in your mouth. What, what, yeah. Like, what, like what, what, what are the first few things that kind of rush to your mind when you think about those days when you were in the kitchen there and, the, and they were going for all these big... I mean, it was, it was exciting. It was like playing, it felt like playing a, it felt like playing a sport, like playing a professional sport. You felt like you were, <clears throat> you felt like you were on a team, you know, like you were on a team in the big leagues. You felt like an athlete. You were there every day, you know, pushing, getting, you know, getting set up, getting food, you know, food taken care of at the highest level and getting food pushed out, getting the cooks set up, ordering, organizing, um, you know, doing whatever it takes all the while, you know, getting screamed at, yelled at the whole nine um, all under the, you know, the pressures of, you know, winning awards, and um, it's, uh, you know, it is exhilarating and intoxicating, and it builds built, you know, some very tight friendships for me. I have I have some. You know, I have some really good friends from those times. Um, you know, people who I know that I can rely upon to be there if I need them, or if I ask them for a favor, or um, or if I need you know information or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're, they're all they're all going to be there, and I and I'll love them forever. How hard is it to step away from a place like that? Like you went off and did a very good restaurant, Bethany. Yeah. But how hard is it to step away from oh, again this place? Hard. This place it, at that moment, at that time, that was like. Yeah. I mean, if 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 that if playing on that field, you know, the fine dining, the you know, the big awards, if that's your thing, right? If you want to, if that's your, if that's the thing that you were one of the game you want to hunt, right? Yeah. There was no better place to be in the world, probably, than that restaurant. Uh, that that was um, that was exactly it and I just knew that forever however long that I was there it would you know it would always it's always and always going to be Daniel's restaurant and you know if I ever wanted to have my restaurant than I needed to go. So let's say, for example, if if the like the nomad comes along, they te- you get the nod. Mm-hmm. You you're going to be the CDC there. It's still got to fit in the Daniel Home lane, right? Like right. it's well, not going to be your. Right. It w- would never have been. It would never right. be mine. Well, this goes back to how we started early in our conversation, right? You want food, you want to do your own something that's yours that people will go out of their way for. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you had that sense of purpose at that time. Yeah, my sense of purpose was to create something that was unique in my own. You know, I tried tried very hard to do that with Bettany and I took a risk. I took a big risk by doing that and I 
you know, I love Daniel and I, I love everything that the, every opportunity that he gave me and afforded me. I appreciate it tremendously. And I was ready to go when the time was came. It was, it was time for me to go. And I think um, he understood that. And he was very supportive uh, after after I left, mm-hmm. so and has and has been very supportive uh, s- since then. So you go off. You you and Eamon, uh do uh, Betany, mm-hmm. and that's an that's a very warm smile you just had when I named that place. Still special to you. Yeah, the, it's uh, it was a it, you know it's a very special place to me. You know. I, created the concept and the idea and the you know the the menu and you know hired the team the team of people that worked there with me just really made it awesome and there's just so there's some great guys who work there I couldn't name them all but you know Jack Jack Logue who's a sh- chef around town he was uh, at the chef at the clock tower and then he also opened something called Tribeca Kitchen and um, now I haven't been in touch with him but I know he's working on a new project um, uh, and Jack but then also Kenneth Fong and Kenneth is the executive chef of Noma mm-hmm. and Kenneth was a sous chef with me you know others others also at Ian Anderson who's now the um, I think he's the number two at, at uh, Le Cuckoo right now um, but he had was the chef of a restaurant in Brooklyn for a while we had a lot of great cooks and who have who are doing good things so I'm really proud of them. It was, I mean, I had, I was, I ate there a couple of times. I really enjoyed it. It was also one of the most beautiful rooms I thought in New York City. Thank you. It was absolutely stunning. There was this amazing. It's been a while now, but I, I went to a, a dinner. Um, I forget. It was like some Japanese society put it on. It was downstairs, and I Go think on. it might have been a sake dinner or something. I don't remember now. I don't even know how I got there. To be honest, I mean, I don't. I know I, I took a cab there, but I mean, I don't know who invited me or it's was a it, very. Was it the Gohan Society? I don't think no? so. That okay. I think I would have remembered. Okay. But I could be wrong. That was a long time ago. All right. But there was this giant table and mm. just the whole, the, the, the feng shui of the whole place was just yeah. spectacular. Yeah, it was cool. Um, what finally, can I ask, what was, the, what finally did you guys, like, why did you have to make the decision to, to close? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, it was a financial decision made by the, uh, made by ownership based off of their other, Projects that were also in the United States, so they were Russian. It was Russian ownership. Oh, I see. And uh, they had a big r- restaurant company in Moscow where they had like twenty-seven. You know, they had like seven fine dining restaurants. They had like thirty-something outposts of a fast casual concept. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, did all the food for Transamerica Airlines. Mm. They catered the Sochi Olympics. They uh, did a lot of stuff in in Russia. Then they opened a thirty thousand square foot catering kitchen, and they opened a giant club restaurant in uh, downtown. Got it. And both of those operations tanked. 
so they're paying this giant bill in Karlstadt, New Jersey, and paying this giant bill on, in, on 14th Street. And it was like more than 100,000 square feet on 14th Street. They just decided that, and Bettany wasn't really making money. Well, I mean, we were... We weren't like really losing money, but we weren't really making money mm -hmm. either. I mean, rent was like seventy-five grand a month. So, and and, and so crazy. And, and escalating three percent every every year. Yeah. For people, I mean, I don't know how many people know. I mean, even if you don't live here, you may know it was right on Fifty Seventh Street. Yeah, like near the near Carnegie Hall, mm -hmm. like primo landmark area, a, a, two blocks from Central Park. I mean, two blocks from Columbus. I mean, yeah, primo. Yeah. Primo yeah. real, New York real estate, and yeah. not a small space. Yeah, it was. We were. I mean, it was uh, seventy-five hundred square feet. Um, it was. Yeah, it was like a big space. It was big space. Yeah. Um, and now you're here. Yeah, exactly. And now I'm here. So, I mean, and in, be, in between then and here, there was a lot of stuff that went on. I ended up doing some consulting uh, work for a few people. I did it. I did one of the most inspiring dinners uh, that I'd ever done in Bhutan for Amman Resorts. And I tell you what, uh, Bhutan is the most beautiful country uh, that I've ever been to. Wow. And it was incredibly inspiring. And if anybody has an opportunity to go, you should go. And was this a collaborative and, dinner, or was just no? The, so, it was just the Bryce show. Yeah, nice. And you should visit. Um, you should visit Bhutan and and see see it if you can go. Have you been able to go back? No, I really want to go. I would really like to go back. It was it was spectacular. Um, so if there's any people who run Bhutanese resorts who'd like to get me a visa, let me know and I'll come. Reach but, out to Bryce, he wants to come. There's this beautiful uh, Buddhist resort called Taksang. It's also called the, the, um, the Tiger's Nest. Mm. And you hike up like 5,000 feet to get to it. And by the time you get up there, you're sweaty and you're hot and you're just like, oh, dying, out of breath. And then you have to put on formal clothes to go inside. the mm -hmm. inside, And you have to give up your phone and all your, you know. So. I like the giving up of the phone. Yeah, it's nice. It hasn't happened to me much, but I, I remember, uh, gosh, 10 years ago. It'll be 10 years ago this summer. I was in Italy. And we went to a very, I can't remember the name right now, but a really famous, they, every year they win like the blind taste test for Balsamico. And on their property, you could have lunch. And before you walk through this little doorway into this little area out back, this little trellis garden, they have like an old, it looks like the mail slots at an old hotel, you mm -hmm. know, or like where they put your key in an old hotel. And they make you, it's like in a mobster movie when everyone have, gives their guns before the big meeting, you know? You have to give your phone. Yeah, they will not let you bring your phone yeah. out there. And I, it, I think that's good once in a while. Yeah. I do. I do. Be nice at a restaurant. It's nice. I tell you, I did a thing this weekend. My wife's birthday is this week, and we had this big day Saturday. And... Um, I didn't. I just in my head, I'm like, I'm not going to take any pictures today. I'm going to see how it affects my day. It it really does change things. We've all gotten so used to this like reflex of 
pull out the phone. Yeah, but like I had lunch document. at I had lunch at Spanish Diner. You know, Jose Andres's thing at Hudson Yards, and yeah. and I had some friends in town, so that was near their hotel. And then we saw a play at BAM in Brooklyn, uh-huh. and we had a, a martini at Peter Luger's, and we had dinner uh-huh. at Francie. And you know, a lot of that stuff would have made for great pictures and good Instagram posts. I'm like, what? why? You seem like you're in a good place. You in a good place? It seems yeah. like you're. Yeah, I'm in a good place. Weather the storm of the last few years. You're doing yeah. stuff you're enjoying. Yeah, absolutely. I am. I love again. I love the people that I'm working with right now. Like I love my team. I I love. Uh, you know, we're looking for a couple cooks, but we're doing we're doing well. I. I like the people that I'm working with. They're they're just um, they're great, and we've got uh, we've got our challenges, you know, and we're focused on making you know those things better. But we've you know we've got a lot of good things going on. We're getting busier. That rooftop is popping off. The restaurant is getting busier. You know, we just opened the Japanese restaurant, so the word is just getting out a little bit now. Oh, yeah. Tell people about that before we wrap. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've opened a Japanese izakaya. It is called Gigi Tokyo. It is spelled the letter G, the letter G, Tokyo. <laughs> and uh, it's inspired by uh, an area in Shinjuku in Tokyo called the Golden Guy district which is i think about six blocks of just this narrow alleyways and um uh passageways of just fun restaurants and shops um where there's all kinds of you know partying and um deliciousness so we've inspired the the restaurant after the restaurant is inspired after this area and uh, we want to bring that sort of spirit to to the place with also um, also we have you know some interesting art in there there's a mural by an artist named Daniel Dugan from LA who did this um, you know one continuous line um, painting on the brick it's really cool Um, there's some custom neon also so um, yeah, come check it out. It's uh, it's yummy, tasty, Japanese-inspired izakaya fair. You know, uh, it's good stuff. Great. Uh, Bryce, good to finally have a conversation with you. Yeah, great to chat. After seeing you around all these years. Thanks for coming on the pod. Thank you. And that's our show for this week. Again, my great thanks to Bryce Schumann for joining us. I should also add my thanks to Bryce and his team for their patience. I actually recorded that interview not long before the hiatus we took this summer. I had intended to air it sooner, and I didn't. Bryce and the rest of your team, thank you very much for your patience and understanding. Thanks, as always, to Sam Pellegrino for their support, and our thanks to Bento Box and Clover for their support. From websites and marketing tools to point of sale, payments and ordering, Bento Box and Clover together offer all the unified technology you need for restaurant success. Learn more and book a demo today at getbento.com better. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, 
Andrew Friedman. If you'd like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend about the show, posting about it on social media, or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts, which helps new listeners find us. Our thanks to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. And thank you for listening. We will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.